So what is this thing about humility and pride? I'm an expert in pride. And as I studied this verse this week, I actually found myself disgusted and motivated. I looked towards Christ. He reminded me of what he's done for me, but he also reminded not only how he was humiliated for me, but how he humbles me. And I leave here, I haven't left yet. I start wanting to pass that along to you. I actually find myself on the inside because I've meditated on this verse all week long. I I want to be humble. I see my pride. I don't like it as much. It's showing up everywhere. I was even on a boat yesterday and started doing something. I had to stop myself right in the middle of the sentence and say, friend, uh, I'm preaching on humility tomorrow. I can't continue this conversation. God did a good work in my heart and I hope he does in yours. Now, pride in our American culture is not always something to discuss us. As a matter of fact, depending on the individual, we kind of like it. Fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee. I am the greatest Muhammad Ali. The architect Frank Lloyd Wright said, early on I had to choose in life between honest arrogance and hypocritical humility. I chose the former and have seen no reason to change. So there's something about our culture that kind of likes this braggadocious bigger than life kind of person. David Bowie just said, man, I'm instant star. Just add water and stir. Kanye West, God chose me. I am God's greatest vessel and my great There's Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, the smug Simon Cowell. And then there was Mr. Trump. Now, whether or not you like Mr. Trump is not what I'm, I mean, either his statements cause you to just kind of smile and say, that's just too funny, or his statements cause you to get more and more angry. But this is what he said. I think nobody knows more about campaign finance than I do because I'm the biggest contributor. I know more about people who get ratings than anyone. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. I know more about courts than any human being on earth. I understand politicians better than anybody. Nobody knows more about trade than me. I know more about renewables than any human being on earth. I think nobody knows more about taxes than I do, maybe in the history of the world. I'm the king of debt. I'm great with debt. Nobody knows debt better than me. I understand money better than anybody. I know more about Cory Booker than he knows about himself. Nobody knows about construction more than I do. I think I know about the economy better than the Federal Reserve, and no one has ever done a better job of being president than I. It was Michael Scott in the office who said, would I rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. So we laugh. Those are funny. There is something about that athlete who looks you in the eye, tells you, I'm going around you. I'm going to your right. And you still can't stop me. And then he does it. And he walks away winking at you. That was Michael Jordan. But hiding is not a funny matter. It really is disgusting to look at. And it harms so badly. 
And Jesus Christ had none of that in him. He was so humble, not haughty. He was not lofty. He was lowly. And he's our model. So let's now read the text, the one verse. Maybe you saw it when we read it earlier. Psalm 138, verse 6. Here it goes. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But in contrast, the haughty, he stiff arms. He knows them from afar. So that first point's pretty easy to see. The Lord and the lofty. He's high. He's the great I am. And it's fun to sit up here on the front and hear the voices cascading forward from behind me. You were singing well as we were almost, I don't know if it's singing or shouting, um, as we're singing, the greatest one imaginable. Nothing can stop him. Powers of hell have not a chance. He's enthroned high above. When Isaiah saw him, he fell down before him. You can't approach him. He is that majestic. Yeah, he's the Lord on high. He's the king of all kings. That's who he is. And the Lord on high, he knows a lot. As a matter of fact, the Lord on high, he knows all. He's always present. He's never sleeping. He's never fooled. He sees every single deed we do. He hears every single word that comes forth from our mouth. He knows what's in our hearts before the words even come forth from our mouth. He can't be surprised. He never learns. He's omnipresent and he's omniscient and he's never ever wrong in his assessment. The Lord on high knows a lot. The Lord on high knows me and you. He knows the inside and the outside. And what does the Lord on high know? That there are haughty ones. That Hebrew word is they're lofty, proud, arrogant, conceited, smug, big-headed. They're legends in their own minds and heroes in their own stories. Maybe some of you southern old-timers know your mom or dad may have looked at you and said, you're getting too big for your britches. Or the psychologist might look at you and give you the prescription of being a, a narcissist. God looks at us and he says, you think too highly of yourself. You're a lover of yourself. Yeah, the Lord knows the haughty ones. Satan was the first haughty one known by the Lord. He was a created being who was designed to serve God. But he, he wasn't interested in God's glory he wasn't interested in God's family, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was not interested in God's kingdom. He wanted he, himself to be supreme. He loved himself. And so building his own kingdom, he looked out for number one. Satan was the haughty one. Who then led others to follow his lead. Those are the angels, the demons. 33%, one-third of the angelic realm said, yeah, we don't like this submissive role serving a God. We like this idea that we're going to serve ourselves. We're going to believe in our own potential. We can be anything we want to be, and we're tired of being uh, servants of God. So now we have Satan and the demons worshiping something else, worshiping themselves instead of worshiping God. 
Adam and his bride were the next haughty ones. Satan comes down and he comes into the garden with malicious intent and he looks at that first couple and what does he say? Let's discount God's law. Let's discount God's consequences that he spoke of. Don't you want to be like the gods? Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be like us? Don't you want to be something more than you are now? Who is that being to tell you you shouldn't eat from that tree? Adam and Eve bought the lie he was selling. And 100% of humanity at that point in the garden was now hedonistic, conceited, self-worshippers. But not just them. Satan became their father figure as they followed his lead. And Satan combined with Adam and Eve so that all children born from Adam and Eve are now children of the devil. John talks about that in his gospel. He writes again of that in 1 John. As children of the devil, what happens? Like father, like son. There's this cancer within. We call them precious little children. And they are precious little children made in the image of God. Precious little children made in the image of God who are really vipers and diapers. Just wait. That cancer on the inside called sin shows itself in many different kinds of symptoms. In many different kinds of transgressions and sins. And pride is one of them. So all men and women proceeding from Adam and Eve are arrogant. And your whole Bible is full of such stories. Adam and Eve discounting God's revelation. Cain discounting God's revelation about how he should worship. Cain loving himself more than his brother, terminating him when he's done with him. We have those in Sodom who say we'll do marriage and we'll do sex like we want to. Those in Sodom so arrogant that when God loved them by warning them, by blinding them, they still pushed on in their sin and rebellion. The same was true of Pharaoh in Egypt. As time after time after time, he disregarded the plagues that God sent his way to teach him. We have Pharaoh leading to Goliath and the Philistines. All of these are leaders who mock God. Goliath did it with his mouth. The Philistines did it as they kidnapped the ark, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and posted it up like a trophy in their case. David, thinking that he is greater than anyone else. And so he uses and abuses Bathsheba before he uses and abuses Uriah. Nebuchadnezzar voicing his own thoughts saying, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? We have Belshazzar who takes God's goblets and uses them for his personal pleasure. Xerxes who takes God's daughters and puts them in his harem to use for his personal pleasure. We have Haman that's going to do everything he can to exterminate the Jews while planning for his own parade. Then we have that story of, that Jesus talks about, about the one Pharisee who stands there and he says, Oh God, I just want to thank you, God, that I am not as wicked as that other guy. He was in a long line of Israel's ministers who solved the miracles, saw the signs around the cross, saw the resurrection, and then used the spin doctors to discount the story and tell others. They would do anything but submit. Arrogancy in the scriptures 
And on and on it goes as we follow our own hearts, love ourselves, and believe the satanic lie. In my own heart. I love you, Lord, with all my heart is the first line of Psalm 138. And before I say that aspirationally, I have to recognize that I have a double-minded heart. It's at war. Yes, I have a new heart, but it's battling something, some remnant of the flesh that's battling some remnant of sin. There's something going on to where I'm inclined sometimes to take that heart that belongs wholly to Jesus and give parts of it to somebody or something else. Yeah, I love myself more than God. I love myself more than my family and my neighbors, and I will use my family to worship me. Internally, I'm arrogant, and when something goes right, I take the credit for it. When something goes wrong, it can't possibly be my fault, as I blame you or I blame even God. Too often... I think I'm the brightest bulb in the room, and my family is lucky to have me as their scholar in residence. But Laura and Joseph and Ashlyn and Andrew have quit bowing down before the idol of Joe Franks a long time ago. There's nothing that kills conversation like the theologian walking in the room. We forsake the word and trust in our own wisdom. We forsake prayer and trust in our own power. We do think we're God's gift to our spouses. It was Paul Tripp who says in his book, he once looked at his wife in a time of argument and said, 95% of the women in our church would love to be married to a man like me. To which his wife said, I'm in the 5%. We want to categorize sin. Why? Why is it important that you have some kind of hierarchy of sins? Well, first of all, remember how I presented it early. It's sin on the inside that just shows itself in symptoms. So there's no categorization of the sins on the inside while there are categorizations of consequences. Not all sins have equal consequences, but who are we to start looking at our sins compared to someone else and say theirs is worse than mine? You know why we do this? Because it makes their sins worse, what makes them worser, is that the right word? Sinners, which makes us better. Because at least we haven't done that. Like Satan, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But what we really mean is, hey, you up there, make sure to do my kingdom, my will. And if you don't, I will judge you, God. I will slander. I will turn away from you. I will even hate you when you don't perform according to our liking. And that's all just on the inside. With our mouth, where does pride come up? It comes up with our external boasting. Some of you don't do it as much with your mouth as maybe you do with your keyboard. We verbally harm people by putting them down and propping ourselves up by slander and gossip. And even when we state the truth uncharitably, and it doesn't need to be stated. And then in our actions, from the heart precedes all kinds of proud expressions. And what do they look like? We take God's commandments under advisement, as if they're options. 
We discount the consequences. And yes, we tread on the grace of the gospel in the face of our Christ. Because he's died for all my sins, past, present, and future, I am not going to submit to you on this one right now, God. I'm just going to sin because you've already covered it. Then comes the harm. We will do anything to harm those who do not contribute to our deification. Politicians will do their people wrong. Africans will do their people wrong by selling them into slavery. We will do them wrong by purchasing and using them. Neighbors will harm one another with unjust business practices. White people will harm black people because white lives matter, and black people will harm white people because black lives matter. Mothers will harm their unwanted surprises that they find within their womb. Men will often harm those in weaker positions. Pastors will harm those by building their cults. Members will harm one another by disturbing the unity. Parents will harm their children by abuse or apathy. Students will harm one another with their peer groups and their promotion of self. What does the Lord think about this? The Lord abhors the haughty. Six things the Lord hates, a haughty eye, that's right next to hands that shed innocent blood. Get that? Hands that shed innocent blood, murder, right next to haughty eyes. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. The Bible says God opposes the proud. Oh, he lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. The Bible says everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination. He will not go unpunished. The Lord tears down the heart of the proud. Or in our verse before us today, let me read it again. God says the haughty, he knows from afar. In my natural condition, he knows me. I'm abhorrent to him in my natural condition. And he knows me from afar. He keeps the haughty from his holy mountain, from his garden, from his house, and from his feast. He holds them at arm's length. He keeps them from his face. That's what God knows about some. But that's not the good news. The really, really good news is that God looked down from heaven. He saw the haughtiness of 100% of humanity. And God said, watch as I go down and I save the Lord and the lowly. And the first thing he did was the Lord sent the humble one whom he regards. That's Jesus Christ. Someone is different. Remember, I told you 100% of people from Adam and Eve are arrogant. But there's one who doesn't come from the line of Adam and Eve. There's one who comes from the line of the Holy Spirit and Mary. That's Jesus Christ. He's different. He's not conceited. He does not think too highly of himself. He's meek. Hey, someone ought to write a book about Jesus being gentle and lowly. By the way, that's the book we give out to anyone who wants it. He doesn't grasp his rights in Philippians chapter 2, but he takes on the form of a servant. 
He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And he proves it by his healings, his teachings, his feedings, his exorcisms. He is so lowly as the greatest servant of all, which makes him truly great. And all oh, how neat that story is of him getting down on his hands and his knees. The one who is high and exalted, lowering himself so that he could wash the feet of his saints. He humbled himself to death, even the death on the cross. And why was the death on the cross necessary? I've already told you. Because God looked down. He saw our pomposity. Is that another word, Laura, or not? Did I just make that one up? He saw our arrogance. He hates it. And he saves us from the hell that he creates for such arrogant people. And he came down, and Jesus Christ had on his shoulders placed all the arrogance and haughtiness of all his people so that there is none of that for which we need to pay. And then Jesus Christ does that incredible work of giving us not only his merit, but he gives us his spirit. And his spirit fruits us with what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Somewhere in there is meekness. And he who began that good work in us continues it on. And so Jesus is the humble one who becomes the humbling one. He reveals our sin to us. He reveals the damnation, the impotency we have to change. He then changes our heart. And he gives us a humble heart. Oh, there's still that war that goes on. There's still that battle but from within now is the new identity we have in Christ. And then out of that heart now, we start practicing who we are. We're declared sinless, and then we try to sin less. Can I say that again? We're declared sinless, and then we enjoy sinning less. And Yahweh, what does he do? Remember, he knows it uses one Hebrew word, which means that he separates from, he kind of knows at a distance from the haughty. But what does it say about the humble? It doesn't use the same word. It changes the word and says he regards us. What does that mean? You ready? He views us. He formally considers us. He pays attention to us. But here we go. It also means in Hebrew, he gloats over us. He delights in us. We are pleasurable to him. So, what are you going to do with this? Some here will be dismissive. Some are angry. Because I'm killing humanism and like the, the potentiality of self to be great. Some are waiting for me to start pounding the pulpit like one of them ancient preachers, just making, making you feel bad. But some here are struck within like I was this week. The Lord and the lowly leads to the Lord and the repenting. So if in 1 John it says, if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we acknowledge our sin, confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. 
And so I stand at the head of a line of people this morning who are repenting. I've been repenting of my pride all week long, and there's not any less pride to repent of. It just keeps coming. It keeps showing itself. That's why I don't believe in just one repentance for the remission of sin. I keep repenting. I live a lifestyle of repentance, just like I don't believe you have faith once and then you're done. No, you have faith and you keep having faith. You repent and you keep repenting. And so we admit our sin. We admit our harm. We admit our punishment our hopelessness, and we believe in what Jesus Christ has done for us, we receive his mercy that we're not going to be damned. We receive his grace that we are adopted children of the Father, never growing closer, never growing farther. We're just fixed. And we receive his grace of progressive sanctification that we get to make progress in saying no to sin Yes to righteousness, repenting more, saying no to sin, yes to righteousness. But this is what he does as he starts with our affections and then he changes our actions and we get to practice and display whatever he's doing in our hearts. And so what are we, we instead of like the arrogant Pharisee who says, oh God, I thank you that I am not like those people. We're the exact opposite this morning. As people who are repenting, all we do is we come over here, we stand, we beat our breast, we don't even look up, and we say, God, be merciful to me, a proud, cocky, arrogant, conceited sinner, to which he says, I've already shown you mercy and grace. I got nothing but mercy and grace for you. And watch as I continue to grace you by helping you now practice. And so we sing. Now we're able to sing. Oh God, I give you thanks. Oh Lord, whole heart before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow toward your holy temple. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Oh, on the day that I called, you answered me and gave me strength of soul. That's what he's doing as we repent. He is strengthening our soul, and giving us more and more of Christ's humility to show externally. We start singing, man, all the kings who are going to be left over. So I don't know how you want to interpret this, but there's going to be a day when all arrogant kings will be cast into the lake of fire, but all princes and princesses of the king who are left standing will be those who give praise to your name because we have heard your word. Oh, Lord. Is that really true that you know the hottie, but you regard me? Man, I can relax. I can Sabbath. I can just explain my sin and just chill for a moment. I can even sing of the goodness of God. But I can't sing of the goodness of God without it affecting me. And oh, how beautiful it is when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy finally his benefits. This is what it looks like when you're Mary and you're massaging the feet of Jesus with your hair. And you just want to enjoy praising him. This is what it looks like to be Paul and just say, you know what? I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the worst of ministers. I'm the chiefest of sinners. This is what it looks like 
to be a Chuck Colson who comes forth from prison as a convict and just says, for the rest of my days, I want to serve my brothers behind the bars and their family and anyone else who will listen to the wisdom that I want to teach from God's word. I've seen people like this that I want to be. Back in our day, I wrote down some names. These are all dead people. But there was this guy, Edward Panosian, that some of you know. Brilliant. Just walked with this humble, servant-like attitude everywhere he went. Or riding on his bicycle around the campus with his pants up to his chest. I can't talk about you yet, Bob, because you're not dead, but we remember David Vaughn. David Vaughn was a dear man in my life, an accomplished doctor, an accomplished businessman, an athlete who played ball for Auburn University, and I've never met a man. I don't know how anybody can be competitive and play at Division I level basketball and be as humble. Tom Casey, a guy who could rip our heads off. Two fingers. Fiery individual before coming to know Jesus Christ. What God did to him is God humbled him. And there was no one in this whole church who would have served you as much as Tom Casey would have. And some of you, I see Christ in you. I'll get to talk about you when you're dead. I want to be such a person. Man, if Laura and I get this, what a marriage that'll be. When our kids start to realize that mom and dad are the biggest servants in the rooms and not just the boss, how they may be more inclined to listen to some wisdom and follow. An incredible businessman you would be as your employers, employees love you, your employer loves you, and your clients want more of what you've got to offer because you really are serving. Oh, teachers, this is what it looks like to impart information, but to be the servant in the classroom. Students, this is what it looks like to humble yourselves, and maybe you really don't know it all. Uh, this is what it looks like to be in school and actually love those people who are ostracized and left out. This is what it would look like to be a good politician and actually be a servant. This is what it would look like to be a good evangelist. And you don't have to win the argument. You're going to win the heart of the people you're trying to bring to Christ. And what a church this would be. If we come before God and we humble ourselves before him every single week, man, the worship will explode as we recognize how exalted he is and yet he loves us, the lowly. And then how in the world do we have church schism? Can't happen impossible when everybody's fighting for the lowest ground. Oh, there'll be difference of opinion and difference of strategy. And someone will be right and someone will be wrong, but nothing will mess up the unity of Jesus Christ when the people of Christ look like Jesus Christ because they have the heart of Jesus Christ.